Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hi everyone, it's Michael McNutt with Weedy, and welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT. This week, we feature another best of looking at privacy and security in a consumer-driven health space. Our guest this week, Dr. Lena Walker, Vice President, Health Security at AARP, Mari Savickas, Vice President of Public Policy at Chime, and Laura Hoffman, Assistant Director, Federal Affairs with the American Medical Association. This session was featured at our national conference that took place October of 2020. Welcome everybody. My name is Tina Grandy. Thank you, Michael, for the introduction. I'm with the Healthcare Leadership Council in Washington, D.C., and am pleased to be a co-chair with Marilyn Zygmunt Luke on privacy and security policy issues for Weedy's work group. Um, today, we have some wonderful speakers who I'll do a very brief introduction for and turn to them to um, to talk about their backgrounds, and then we'll lead in for a discussion on examining privacy and security as it relates to consumers in the space where lots of privacy and security um, regulation is, is very little to either non-existent. But before we launch into this, I'm going to ask Marilyn to say a few words. Marilyn, if you're on, and um, the role you'll be playing today. Thanks. Tina, thank you, and I appreciate everyone taking time to join us for the discussion this afternoon. Uh, my role today is going to be to ask questions. So just as a reminder, we're not going to have a lot of slides because we're in a virtual event. We wanted this to be more of a discussion format. And so you can do one of two things. You can put any questions in the chat and send them to everyone, or you can uh, put them in the chat and send them to me privately. And then as we move through the discussions, we'll be sure to ask our panelists so that we're getting all of the important issues that you're interested in and that might need a little bit more clarification. Great, thanks, Marilyn. Um, I, so what we'll do first is just introduce our three wonderful speakers who um, have a lot to share with us today on this topic. Uh, we've got Laura Hoffman, who's the Assistant Director of Federal Affairs at the American Medical Association. Mari Savickas, Vice President of Public Policy for CHIME. And for those of you who might not know, CHIME is the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives. And we've got Lena Walker. She is Vice President of Health Security at AARP's Public Policy Institute. So we've got three really great speakers with us today. And we are going to talk about privacy and security in a consumer-driven healthcare space. Um, I think just as an opening um, remark, myself, in terms of privacy and security in the consumer space, it's, it's a topic that's gotten a lot more attention recently with um, COVID and a lot of the surveillance tracking and discussions around sharing health information um, for some very important reasons during a pandemic. And um, when the pandemic subsides, and it will at some point sort of it, it will be interesting to see where consumers are in terms of sharing their information, particularly if it's identifiable, um, uh, if they have knowledge or not as to whether that is regulated or not. There's been some interesting research. Uh, I know Pew Charitable Trust just uh, finished a survey of consumers on this issue, and um, by and large, consumers were generally comfortable sharing their information, uh, health information, um, 
And that was without the caveat that it did not have the same protections associated with it that HIPAA does. Once consumers were educated about the fact that their, their health information, when it left the HIPAA realm and went into um, sort of the space of unregulated um, environments like apps and other other areas like that, the confidence in sharing information, particularly identifiable information, really dropped among consumers. So it does seem um, there's a there's an element of educational awareness as it relates to um, the comfortableness that folks have on sharing their identifiable health information once they realize the extent or not of uh, the regulation associated with with that. Um, so I'm going to stop there in terms of my own opening remarks. And I thought maybe we could just in alphabetical order go and start with Laura, move to Mari and Lena about why um, you know, you're here today. And then we've got some questions that I can kick off with, but I um, wanted to give each of you a chance to introduce yourselves a little bit. So Laura, why don't we start with you? Okay, there we go, I'm off mute. Hi everybody, thanks Tina um, and thank you Marilyn both for hosting this panel and thank you everybody for, for tuning in um, to what I think is a really critical conversation to be having. Um, I, I care a lot about this issue and work on it a lot at the AMA. Uh, we definitely are um, paying a lot of attention to how health information is shared outside of the HIPAA space. Um, and Tina brought up, you know, a great recent poll that um, essentially gets at the heart of uh, what we are trying to, to educate consumers about and work with the healthcare stakeholder community about in terms of just making sure that patients understand what happens to their health data once it leaves the kind of HIPAA universe uh, that we all know um, applies to covered entities like physicians and, and health plans. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the times when people hear about kind of privacy and data controls, they um, immediately think about that slowing information exchange down and kind of stymieing the exchange of information and interoperability. Um, and one thing I would suggest to you know, my co-panelists and, and others uh, listening in the audience is that maybe it's time to reframe that thinking um, and think about how if consumers are aware of how their information is used and kind of what the rules of the road are when it comes to health information being exchanged, um, that might actually help to improve interoperability and improve confidence in the exchange of, of healthcare information. Um, I think we saw pretty clearly this summer that there was a lot of reluctance um, from consumers to use things like digital contact tracing apps because there's uncertainty about who that information might be shared with. Um, so, you know, I think that as this conversation continues, trying to communicate that privacy and data controls aren't necessarily about slowing information down. They're about generating confidence and um, a common understanding about how information will be used by third parties and then collectively coming up with rules of the road to decide what consumers are comfortable with um, in, that, in that space. So um, I'll stop there, but uh, thank you again for having me and I'm looking forward to the discussion. 
Great, Laura, thank you so much. Mari, just some high level thoughts from you about why this is important, why it matters and why you're here today. Yeah, thank you, Tina. Um, I, like Laura, share a very passionate perspective regarding uh, consumer and patient privacy. Otherwise, I don't think you know we'd be doing this kind of work. And I guess I would posit that privacy is still an American value. And even though you know it may have been watered down conceivably over the past several years, maybe even you know we're probably like pushing out a decade here. Um, and you you may say, oh, like you know, privacy is out the door. Everyone has my data. Um, you know, you have to really think about the downstream effects of what this means as a consumer. And there are disparities. And I'm not talking about necessarily about like racial disparities. I'm just talking about disparities in general. How your data gets used can have implications that you may never have perceived. For example, they could be built into algorithms that um, weed you out when you're looking for a, a job. And that, you know, you may say, well, that's not really related to healthcare, I'm like, but it is because it is. And so as we evolve into, I've, I've told our members, and our members are largely the chief information officers of hospitals and health systems across the country. They are the ones that purchase and deploy technology, and they, too, are very passionate about making sure that they um, they abide by their responsibilities under HIPAA. But if you can think of, like, the last decade of health IT being the high-tech era and the next decade of health IT being about information blocking, we really have to, like, you know, change our mindset. And, you know, I was around when HIPAA was first conceived in terms of putting it into operation, and a lot has changed, but a lot still hasn't changed. People still value their privacy, and you have to think through this. You know, every time that you're giving away your information, you you know, it's never free, okay? It's never free when you give away your information. There's always someone who's going to be benefiting by that, and if you're okay with that, that is completely fine. That is and it's every, everybody's responsibility, though, to understand where that information is going and what the downstream implications could be for you or your neighbor or your, your family. But when you give away this information freely, you just have to know, you know, how it's being used. And I guess the other thing I'd say about that, and, you know, I'm sure Lauren, I can go like on and on forever. So I'll make my remarks somewhat concise here is that there's not a lot of transparency in how this information is used. So if you, you know, and I'm as guilty as the next person of like scrolling through the eight screens, yep, click, accept, okay, on to the next thing. But because now I'm an educated consumer and I know what's in there, I might actually take the time to examine what the statement is. But, you know, there's um, been studies that show that the average reading level of, um, you know, in terms of when you're looking at these privacy statements, it's not, you know, it's like very, very high. You know, it's, it's not for the average consumer. And none of us really have the patience to scroll through like eight pages or eight screens of six-point font. So I think that, you know, there, there's a lot going on here. and There's a lot of room for us to work and make improvements and work together. So I'll pause there and hand it back to you, Tina. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mari. That was fantastic. And Lena, Lena, really, you're at the heart of all of this, representing AARP, a consumer organization. And I, I'm so excited to hear from you today um, about where, where really are your members as consumers are on the sharing of their health information. And uh, I'd like you to just give some opening remarks as well about this topic. Is Lena here? Sorry, I always forget to mute. Hi, Lena. Thanks for having <laughs> Thank you so much, Tina. And I'm so happy to be here and so glad to be part of this panel to discuss this very important issue. I agree with uh, what Laura and Mari have said about how 
this is um, a timely topic for us to be discussed Discussing not just what we've seen with COVID, but we know that technology is transforming nearly every aspect of the consumer's healthcare experience, right? And there are all these applications that are generating, capturing, and leveraging consumer health data, and it's rapidly proliferating. Um, one thing that we have done in AARP is we've brought together some consumer and patient advocate groups to talk about what this means for consumers and patients. Uh, and one point that emerged in that discussion is that a lot of uh, the applications <clears throat> relate to the data that's being captured aren't just health data, like in the traditional definition of health. A lot of it is generated from, you know, different aspects of everyday lives. And every day I seem to hear more stories of how uh, non-health data is being used to infer health status. In fact, just this weekend, I was listening to a story about a study that's used the computer mouse, you know, how you use it and how quickly you use the mouse and that can be used to infer your mental health status. And certainly in the conversations that we had with um, the various advocates, there are tremendous opportunity in the use of data, you know, health data, non-health data that's used for health status. And I think that most people on this call are aware of what these opportunities are, right? You can improve care. You might be better at um, diagnostics. It could be used to empower consumers and family caregivers and help them better manage their health. But what struck us and what was a theme in a lot of our conversations is that there is this tension between the potential benefits and also the potential risk, right? And I think um, we, and we can also list these risks, I think we are well aware, and it, it has come to the fore in COVID, for instance, that um, some of the risks are that it, perpetu it could perpetuate biases and racism, it could widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots. It could contribute to social isolation. And in fact, what's relevant for this panel is that there are emerging new privacy and security issues in this, this brave new world that we live in. So one thing that we have done at AARP to try and understand what all this means for, for older adults is to start, we wanted to understand sort of technology usage among older adults. And so we asked them about wearables and health apps. And what we found is that the adoption rate uh, is closing between older and younger age groups, but there's still a difference um, when you're comparing to people who are 65 and older. And when we asked them, you know, asked those who were wearing, who were using wearables and health apps, if they would be willing to share their personal health information with different entities. Uh, and the response is very similar to what Pew found in their survey. And, and it is that privacy concerns is top of mind for them. Anyway, I would say that most were unwilling to share the data with a third party, maybe with the exception of their own healthcare provider. And a full third were not willing to share their data at all. Now, we also found that there is a lot of interest among older adults to kind of use 
new and cutting edge technology and applications. So we would describe, for instance, what all these different technologies and applications could do. And we had interest that was over 40% for some of them, but then that did not translate into ownership rates. And in fact, ownership rates never exceeded 2% in all the different options that we went through. So I, I mentioned these statistics to illustrate a broader point. You know, this session is called Privacy and Security in a Consumer-Driven Healthcare Space. But what the statistics are telling me is that older adults are not rushing out to acquire technology and apps. They're not rushing out to get them to manage their health and their wellness. So privacy and security is not an ex post concern, right? Privacy and security is what's keeping them from using these tools. And, and that is a good thing if there is, you know, reasons to be concerned. <clears throat> and, you know, as I mentioned, there are some of all the potential risks. But it's a bad thing if there's opportunity that's not being realized, yeah. right? So why, what could be going on? Some possibilities could be the lack of trust. They can't distinguish the good from the bad players. They don't know if there's a, a credible recourse for them if something goes wrong. And so I would end by saying, <clears throat> is it reasonable to expect consumers to sort it all out themselves? Because that is the state of the world that we live in today. And because of that, it's not surprising to me that nearly one in six, oh, sorry, it's not nearly six in 10 say that the potential risk of companies collecting data about them outweigh the potential benefits, right? And so that's an important point to keep in mind that if we're developing policies, we need to think about transparency. We need to think about so consumer control. We need to think about accountability. And really what we're trying, what we should be focusing on is how do we minimize the risk for consumers provide assurances and protections for them so that they can realize the potential of a lot of these tools and applications. Over to you, Tina. Yeah, well said. The tension between sharing your information for a reason that's going to benefit you as opposed to not sharing because you feel it's going to be used against you is, is such a huge it, I mean, for me personally, even um, I'm always weighing and, and you can't escape technology either. It's it's so, you know, knitted into the fabric of our daily lives now. It's a very difficult situation for people to be in. And I do think um, more seems to be being said about it. You know, even Netflix now is doing documentaries. I see, you know, another new one pop up here and there. And it, word seems to be getting out, I think, a bit more um, that is meant to educate consumers and maybe not blindly just go into handing over your information if you wouldn't otherwise know, you know, not to, if that makes sense. Like some people they just say privacy is out the window and they don't care and they'll share everything. That's fine if that's what they choose to do. But for people who don't really understand and if they knew the, the pros and cons of sharing their information, sounds like your research is showing and Pew's research is showing that 
the more educated you become, the more, I think, careful you are about sharing your information. Um, and that leads to also, Laura, you had, you had mentioned um, in some of our back conversations about the AMA issuing a set of privacy principles. Um, and we'd love to know sort of how, how did the AMA decide to come together to, to produce these principles? What was the impetus behind it? And how do you think the AMA will be using these principles moving forward? Yeah, thanks, Tina. Um, so essentially, we, um, a little bit of, of background, the AMA's um, advocacy agenda is largely driven by its internal House of Delegates policy agenda. Um, basically, uh -huh. twice a year, you know, all of medicine comes together and comes up with various policies and directives that they believe set, you know, the correct course for mm -hmm. medicine. Um, we have a lot of policy on privacy and confidentiality within the healthcare system. Of course, you know, that's a lot of what doctors have been familiar with and thinking about for the last uh, couple of decades. Um, but over the last few years, as we are increasingly seeing healthcare information be exchanged outside of the healthcare system, it became pretty clear that we didn't have much in the sense of our House of Delegates policy to go on um, to allow us to kind of advocate and weigh in on where, um, where policy development should go in this space. So we basically started with that House of Delegates policy that we have that was existing and extrapolated it out and said, what, what should this look like um, in, the, in the consumer space? And what kinds of things do we need to be thinking about um, for potential, you know, federal privacy legislation, um, other kinds of privacy frameworks that, you know, are um, kind of being brainstormed and developed in the more private mm -hmm. sector. Um, we wanted to have basically a core set of principles that, that we could hold out to the industry and say, this is what, as physicians, we think are um, critical to maintain patient trust in the physician-patient mm -hmm. relationship. And again, to engender trust by consumers and users of technology so that we can keep innovation moving forward and interoperability mm -hmm. moving forward. You know, as, as Lino mm -hmm. remarked, um, if we don't talk about privacy and security from the get-go, uh, when we talk about building technologies and policies, then people aren't going to use those technologies. Yeah. Um, so the principles focus on kind of five key buckets. Um, you know, there's individual rights, there's entity responsibilities. And so those are kind of two sides of the same coin in a way. Mm -hmm. um, there's applicability and enforcement, but there's also um, a section on equity and justice. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, that's a really important piece to highlight when we talk about data and privacy. Um, because again, this isn't just sort of like some technical wonky issue when we talk about um, privacy principles. This is this is people's real lives. And, you know, as Mari remarked, like data can be used for good and it can be used for bad. Um, and oftentimes it is the most marginalized communities that, um, you know, may be affected and, and negatively impacted by use of data in ways that they aren't aware of. Um, whether it's a literacy issue or a transparency issue, um, and, and that can really harm them. You know, again, access to jobs, access to housing, access to um, 
you know, different kinds of insurance coverage, whether it's health, life, disability. Um, so we wanted to really make sure that those principles were embedded into our, our privacy document to be sure that, you know, when, when legislation comes out, for example, as we try to give individuals more ownership and autonomy when it comes to how their data is used, we also are being corresponding, you know, anti-discrimination protections when necessary, saying that, you know, um, people's data, they should be aware of if their data is being used to train algorithms. Um, they should, you know, a company shouldn't be allowed to develop discriminatory um, risk profiles about people based on the data that they act oftentimes without people's knowledge. Um, so, you know, there are a number of kind of codes of conduct, the Karen has a code of conduct, FTC has developed, you know, some best principles and practices around privacy. ONC has a model privacy notice. These are all good, important tools. Um, I think we wanted to just provide that physician perspective. Again, we wanted to build in that, that um, equity component. Um, and we wanted to ensure that overall, there is a bit of a, a switch. Right now, it's all on the consumer and to like dig through those six pages of um, terms and conditions when you sign up for an app. And yes, I am a nerd who actually tries to read them, but they're honestly not always that helpful because it might say something like, we will share data with our partners to improve this product. Okay, well, what does that really mean? So, you know, we want to kind of um, shift the onus on the consumer needing to figure all this stuff out and put more responsibility on entities who are actually collecting and, and sharing data in inappropriate ways to say that there are certain things that you just can't do unless you receive like really clear um, specific, you know, okays from users, um, but, you know, they have these specific terms that they have to be written in an elementary school kind of level of writing. Um, and so hopefully this will be some guidance to federal lawmakers, um, you know, to, to private industry, to app developers and other kinds of technology developers to say, hey, you know, these are the things that patients and physicians are really thinking about and the kinds of things that we can do now, even perhaps before a privacy law is, is introduced to, um, you know, to instill confidence, to instill trust, to get ahead of the game and, and act responsibly with, with people's data. Um, so yeah, and it's important, Laura, to have the physician community, the AMA out there on this. Um, Pews, some of, some of their research also showed that uh, consumers trust their physicians more than anyone when it comes to should they share their, their health information or not. Um, so it's wonderful to see that the AMA has posted those principles. Oh, Lena, do you have a question? Then I, I need to turn to Mari. I've got a good one for her, too. But Lena, did you want to comment quickly? Yeah, I just I just want to um, to comment on these privacy principles. I I think that they're really good, Laura. Thank you for sharing them. I mean, the two that that struck you know stuck out and struck me were um, the issue around equity. I think that that as we've mm -hmm. seen with COVID, it is so important that we think about. Um, how data could potentially be used to discriminate. And we want to make sure that we set up guardrails that, that to ensure it doesn't happen. 
but also the lack of data, you know, mm-hmm. lack of data in building algorithms or in these AI tools could also lead to a lot of bias. So something to keep in mind, and I don't know if that's reflected in your privacy principles. And then your other comment about making sure that these privacy policies are written in a way that consumers can understand them. You know, I, I mean, I, I would I would just reinforce how important it is. And um, in so many other parts of our lives, there's so much work being done in like journey mapping and thinking about the consumer experience and trying to, you know, make it so that people understand what, what they're getting and people can make decisions. And I think that it's, it's certainly possible to do that in healthcare and certainly possible to, to write privacy policies that's more understandable in mm-hmm. English. I have seen good examples on various websites. Uh-huh. It's all voluntary right, right now. So how can we get to a place where the majority are thinking about producing these privacy policies or like framing it and setting it up in a way that makes it understandable and a transparent to consumers. Absolutely. It's very true, Lena. And, and you did mention COVID. And I wanted to ask Mari, um, do you think this era of COVID has changed the way we think about privacy and security, our security of our health information There's been so much discussion around contact tracing and surveillance and sharing information uh, with public health authorities and who are public health authorities contracting with to do some of this work. I'd love to get your thoughts on how COVID has has affected the privacy and security mindset of of individuals as, as you see it and whether your member organization has any discussions about collecting data for COVID purposes, be it aggregated or individual, just your thoughts around all of that. Sure, Tina. Um, well, I think we all would agree, if there's one thing we can all agree on, that we're all patients, right? I mean, everybody is always a patient. You know, I, I, while I sit in the provider seat at the table when I'm at work for a time, I'm still a patient. And so COVID has really accentuated that we're all patients. And so we all have you know, to some degree, make sure there are varying levels of concern over um, whether or not you'll contract it or if you've contracted it. So it has put this in the spotlight. And to your question about, you know, has this um, become more of an issue? I think it has. I mean, the contact tracing, as Laura mentioned, I'd say it's received a lackluster uptake, and that's not by accident. Because what's going to happen with your data? I I don't, I wouldn't um, espouse that good policy is I'll do things on a wing and a prayer. That's really not how, you know, can you imagine if a hospital or a doctor is like, oh, I'll just promise the patient I'll keep everything secure. That is absolutely not how it works today. There are two parallel but unequal universes where you have those who are covered by HIPAA and those who are not covered by HIPAA. And all those who are not covered by HIPAA, all they have to do is change their terms and agreement, which we just discussed are completely lengthy, unreadable, not consumer friendly, and could be buried. So you could see that in a moment they're like, oh, you know, I'm signing up for this app or um, this technology. And in one moment they're saying we're not selling or commoditizing your data or they're saying, oh, we're just going to share with our, our third parties that we work closely with. And the next moment they change their terms and conditions or they don't tell you that they change their terms and conditions and you're off to the races. So I certainly think it has accentuated some of it. I still think, though, we still have a long way to go to educate the, the average consumer. Um, there 
you know, there were some bills before Congress um, this year that did address privacy from a COVID standpoint, and they were very um, myopically focused on that issue. And even those couldn't get over the finish line because there's still a lot of concerns, um, you know, between the Democrats and Republicans about what actually would be contained. And, and I think most people know, because you're all HIPAA experts, that there's no private right of action. And so that was one of the issues is like, you know, could a consumer take, you know, legal action should their information be used in what they perceive to be a nefarious or inappropriate manner? So this is really putting front and center. Um, but I still think it takes a backseat sometimes. And so I'm, I think, you know, we're hopeful that, you know, come 2021, that once, you know, we get, get past the election and it's been a crazy year. And, you know, I think we're all keeping our eye on what could happen from a public health standpoint with the winner. But if we could just get back to the, you know, discussing privacy, it's going to be incredibly important. And, and just everyone, you know, if we can educate people about, say, you know, don't smoke or, you know, like these national campaigns, everyone, unfortunately, Lena, because, you, again, you have to kind of be your own advocate, which is really not fair all the time, but you have to really read the details. You have to. And so, or, or have your caregiver read the details. You know, like, I, for example, I, um, I, I have a son who's nine years old and I need it. He's, he's a wanderer. He's got special needs. But I had to weigh the decision. Do I get a watch that I know where he can kind of move about and give away my data to my telecommunications carrier? Or do I just say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to let him wander off? And so you have to personally make these trade-offs, you know, and people should be going into these decisions, not necessarily lately. Like, like, like Laura, unfortunately, I'm some sicko that reads, you know, privacy notices because I want to know what's in there. Yeah, I mean, especially with those personal situations where there's a lot at stake, you know, it's it's a really, really big decision. Um, and I know Marilyn, she's got a lot of HIPAA background, and I think she wanted to hop in and mention something as it relates to HIPAA. Marilyn, are you there? I'm here, Tina, and I thought I would focus uh, the question either to Lena or to Lara, in terms of HIPAA, we've got so many health entities that have been following privacy and security requirements for many years. And a lot of the work now is focused in the regulatory context in terms of interoperability and making data more available. So where do you think we go from here? Mari's mentioned some privacy legislation, but from the consumer standpoint, what do you think is better to sort of move away from the notice and what we'll call the authorization process, develop a new federal law, work within the regulatory structure. Do you have any opinions about that? If I um, could kick it in first, Laura. Yeah, I'm happy to start. Um, I think, you know, there are a couple things. So first of all, as far as the information blocking rules go, um, the AMA had advocated very strongly uh, for the final information blocking rules to contain some kind of mechanism that would um, provide patients with greater transparency. And, you know, I won't bore you all with the details, but essentially it would require having apps that connect to an EHR, provide an answer to a yes, no question, three yes, no questions. And basically that's whether the app was designed with privacy in mind, so a kind of a privacy by design attestation, mm -hmm. uh, whether it adhered to industry developed best practices about how data is shared. So again, some, an example might be the Karen Code of Conduct um, or FTC's best practices. 
and whether it contained a model privacy notice, such as the ONC model privacy notice, which I mentioned earlier. And um, our proposal had said that even if an app said no, you know, that wouldn't prevent the app from connecting if the patient really wanted to use that app. Um, but it would create kind of a, a running database of apps that decide, hey, we want to prioritize privacy. We want to help you get your health information and make sure that you understand what's being done with it at the same time. Um, that that proposal was not accepted by ONC. It didn't make its way into the final rule. But something that ONC did clarify was that um, physicians and other healthcare providers who have these kinds of conversations with their patients or who work with their EHR vendors to try to implement some kind of similar attestation um, framework would not be considered information blockers. Um, and I know that I believe Epic is kind of working on something to that effect. Um, mm -hmm. They talked about it at an earlier ONC conference this summer. So um, folks using Epic should look mm -hmm. into that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think I think that's a temporary fix. We always figured that that would be a temporary uh, solution to to really try to bridge the gap to getting to federal privacy legislation. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, that's what needs to happen. You know, some folks mm -hmm. want to hold out the FTC's current um, laws as being kind of all that's really necessary for protecting people using apps, saying that it, um, FTC's Section 5 enforcement around, you know, um, unfair and coercive practices um, will, you know, we'll be able to kind of capture all of the bad behavior we're seeing. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's accurate. I think that we need something that is much mm -hmm. more comprehensive and mm -hmm. specific uh, and directive about, you know, what companies are allowed to do with healthcare information, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. similar to how HIPAA governs that for physicians. And I recognize that HIPAA is pretty uh, prescriptive and we are trying to do our best to inject additional transparency into the healthcare system as well, particularly when it comes to business associate arrangements. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, you know, I kind of said recently that in the same way that physicians aim to stop the bleeding first when they're treating mm -hmm. patients, you know, we're trying to get at an area where there are really no effective rules right now. So like, let's make sure that we're kind of cutting off the bleeding of the data um, that's occurring currently outside of the HIPAA framework and make sure that we get some kinds of rules um, and guardrails into that space. Lena, Lena, I don't know if you have similar thoughts or, but I'd love to hear what you guys are thinking as well. Right, um, so I will share some general principles. So we have always said that information sharing is paramount because if consumers and their, their healthcare providers and clinicians need the information, they're going to provide good care, right? And so where there are obstacles, those obstacles need to be addressed. Now, consumers and patients and the caregivers have, and we've all heard stories of these, have for a long time struggled to have get hold of their medical records. So being able to have access to their medical records through these API is a step in the right direction. Now, we have also said that um, it is too hard to leave it to the consumer to figure out the good players from the bad players, right? So there needs to be some level, some standard in place around privacy and security so that the onus is not on the consumer to have to sort it out. And so you've got to have a set of rules 
that everybody has to play with so that that patients and their caregivers and their families are assured that there's a minimum set of protections in place for them, both in terms of the privacy and the security when they're using their data outside of the HIPAA uh, protected environment. So, and finally, we've always, we've always said that transparency about how data being used and the ability for the consumers to have control, understanding and control about how the data are being used and being, being able to say no if they don't want it used in that particular way has to be available to the consumer. So those are our general principles. So Mari, one more question, picking up on what Lena said, we've heard a lot about when there is consumer control that it can actually work to the detriment of the individual so that if they restrict access to certain information, there could actually be a poor patient outcome because essentially a provider could be put in a position that they're not acting based on a complete record and they're making decisions mm -hmm. on information that may be missing or uh, may have important elements out of there. Do you have an opinion about, about that from the consumer perspective? Yeah, that, and thank you for that question. We have an opinion on that, absolutely. It is not the responsibility or the burden of the patient to be sharing information across providers and clinicians. That mm -hmm. job, that responsibility has to rely with, with, has to remain within the health system. Patients use their information to support their own empowerment, their own engagement, and their informed decision-making. But the job of caring for the patient, providing the appropriate clinical treatment has to remain within the healthcare system and with, with clinicians. And so information sharing between providers, between health systems have to continue without relying on the consumer to transmit that information. Mm -hmm. I would also well, say that I think it's very important to remember that consumers aren't going to share information with their physicians if they don't know where that information is going to end up necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a huge, one thing I was going to say in response to the last question as well, this is a good bridge is, you know, something that could be interesting to Weedy's audience, I think is thinking a lot more about data segmentation and mm -hmm. how certain information can be shared with a clinician and then it is shared on essentially a need-to-know basis. And to Lena's point, if a clinician, um, you know, believes it is important for a patient's treatment to share that information with other providers, um, then it can be done appropriately. So, for example, you might want to send um, a record having to do with, gosh, I don't know, someone's immunizations, but not want to share all of the information that was shared in a particular office note or something, because maybe mm -hmm. you're talking about STI status or, you know, mental health or certain medications, whatever it is. So, um, so I think that as we talk about ways to keep information flowing, give patients autonomy and control over, over who gets to see their information, but then also still give clinicians the tools they need to share that information appropriately for good patient outcomes. We need to be thinking about, all right, what's the technology that's gonna help us get there? 
the kinds of things we need to support and start ramping up the implementation of, because otherwise we're going to keep having the same conversations we had a decade ago when I was practicing law and health centers would ask me, how am I supposed to share a patient portal with my adolescent teen's parents when they're allowed to come to me for confidential services, and but, it, but I can't strip out that confidential service information from my notes. Um, we're still having those same exact conversations and questions. So mm-hmm. um, I would really encourage folks to start thinking and talking to vendors and other standards development organizations about um, the need for segmentation, because I think that that will help us move the ball in protecting better privacy, protecting privacy better as we also encourage better interoperability. So, so a lot of questions in the time that we have remaining, and yeah. I want to make sure we get to them. One is just, uh, uh, Laura, sort of following up on what you stated. The impression is that there are not any federal guidelines currently for the item level segmentation. Is that correct? Yeah, so there, um, there are a couple of standards out there and that are in development. Um, you know, DS4P, Data Segmentation for Privacy, is one that was in the proposed ONC rule. Um, you know, the AMA had advocated that that should be an, a, a standard that all EHRs had to adopt, um, but that is not what happened. So, um, you know, HL7 is doing a lot of work in terms of security labeling, um, there are some other kind of private work groups that are that are working on how to better implement this stuff. But as far as I am, as far as I'm aware, there is very little in terms of federal mandate around using segmentation. It's sort of left up to every provider to figure out how they're going to accommodate the various privacy rules that they need to adhere to. And Mario, yeah, the last question that we have has to do can with I, Marilyn. Can yes. I just note that that um, high tech did make an exception in terms of if you, if you do not want your information to be shared and you're paying for your healthcare in cash to a physician or a provider, that is when you can say, "Do not send my information anywhere," and the provider is not allowed to send it if you've paid for it in cash. And that's to health insurance. Isn't that right, Marilyn? Yes. Good point, Tina. I'm glad that you raised that. Yeah. It's not granular data segmentation, I don't think, in the way that these folks are thinking of. Marilyn, go ahead with the chat. You're right. We've got more in there. We've got one more question. And I don't know if Mari or Lainey, you want to address it. It has to do with the unexpected treatment or the emergency situation and the need to access data. I think it probably relates to the data segmentation and the elements that may not be available. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is, I, I mean, I can start and others can um, can pipe in here. You, I mean, once the information blocking rules go into effect, um, and they are going into effect starting November 2nd, barring any deadline or de- delay, which is conceivable that this could happen. Um, so we're those of us who follow this really closely are looking for a potential delay that relates to our work, our ongoing work to fight the pandemic. And while, you know, Chime and I'm sure other many other provider organizations, in fact, you know, the AMA and Chime and some other provider groups have banded together to continue to advocate for smart policy, have, you know, support these policies. We, We do need a little bit more space. I'll just like say that. But with respect to the data segmentation, I mean, 
there there isn't really a great way to do this right now. And one thing that was with this issue just was raised to us recently is that the progress note has to be able to, you know, you have to be able to send that. But what happens if you're parking in the progress note information that may be sensitive? You know, to Laura's point, you might be like, they say you're seeing your doctor for a knee injury, but maybe your doctor notices you're feeling kind of down and wants to talk about depression, but that could all get wrapped up into a progress note. And the thing is, now you have to make the progress note available. And so it's all in there and there's no way to, um, to tightly and neatly compartmentalize this information. And so there's, we're going to have this push-pull where maybe some too much information gets released um, and, and maybe not enough gets released. So I, so I think this will play out as we go, you know, as we go live, we as the provider community go live and start to see how this works. Um, but there, I think that this, this issue of data segmentation is really important. It goes to the heart of, like, the topic here about privacy. So if, you know, if, if you want to share that information with another provider or caregiver, you absolutely, like from our standpoint, that information should be not blocked and should be flow seamlessly. I don't think the seamlessly thing is we, we haven't cracked that nut quite yet. But if you want to keep that private, right, if you don't want to share, you know, your, the fact mm-hmm. that you may be, you know, suffering from depression with everybody else then we don't have a, always a neat way to compartmentalize this. And so I think it would be great to see the, um, you know, the federal leadership and, you know, HL something to continue to go down that road with the data segmentation standard to really prioritize this. We're definitely going to need more of this as we start to, um, once the rules come out for part two, the mm-hmm. consent pieces for substance right. abuse and mental health. I mean, there's a lot of cascading effects here. Um, it right. could be even genetic information, right? There's there's right. a lot of things that um, that have not been ard out seamlessly. I hate to cut you off, Maury, but Tina, we are past our time for the yep. for the agenda. We are. So I want to thank everybody. And just what I found interesting as a takeaway from this conversation was that we actually did a lot of talking about changes inside HIPAA. I mean, the last part of this discussion was more so about, you know, revise, it, it would need HIPAA revisions. So I think it's really interesting that we started broadly. And I think it's, it looks like it's a very collective agreement that a lot more needs to be done outside of HIPAA to protect consumers' information and that consumers want that information protected. As we moved into our data segmentation discussion, we definitely started sort of walking into HIPAA territory. And um, it's it's interesting. I think um, it just sounds like big picture. People want more control of their identifiable health information. It doesn't matter which law is sitting over it. It sounds like um, consumers, and this panel is about consumers, would like to control more who has their information uh, in, in any setting that they're in. And these, you, you all as panelists have been fantastic. And Marilyn, thank you so much for managing all the questions coming in on the chat for this session. And we'd love to continue the conversation. This is a topic that's very important. And I think maybe it was Mari who said, um, this next, next decade is gonna be looking at information, the era or Laura, it, it, the era of information blocking. I think it could also be the era of you know, protecting our health information more solidly as well. So Lena, with the consumer perspective, thank you so much. Um, Mari, Laura, with the healthcare industry perspective, it's been a very um, good panel. And and Marilyn, thanks for manning the uh, chat room well for us as well. Tina, thank you for all your work in leading the discussion and keeping us focused. 
All right, everyone. Have a terrific afternoon.